0: Almost as mysterious as outer space is the U.S. government agency that explores it. This week's Please Explain is all about NASA. And I'm joined by Dr. Valerie Neal, who is the author of Where Next, Columbus? The Future of Space Exploration from Oxford University Press. She is also the chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And we're hoping to pull back the curtain on the inner workings of NASA, a $19 billion agency that employs about 17,400 people. We'll even talk a bit about the recent discovery of seven Earth-like planets. Welcome to our show, Dr. Neal.
1: Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to join you.
0: And we invite our listeners, always, uh, to join in the conversation during these Please Explain segments. If you have a question about the nuts and bolts of NASA or anything else that you've been curious about, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. That's 212-433-WNYC. Or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Dr. Neil, uh, what do we know about the recently discovered Earth-like planets? What makes them similar to Earth?
1: same size as Earth, and they are in what's considered to be the habitable zone, which is the distance away from their star where they could have Earth-like conditions. Um, If you look at our solar system, it's a little bit like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The closest planets are too hot, the farthest planets are too cold, but Earth is just in the right spot to be just right uh, for life as we know it. And uh, this other star system now, the Trappist uh, star and planetary system has uh, several planets that are in that habitable zone.
0: Well, they're all revolving around one dwarf star. Would that mean that they're really packed and close together?
1: Um, I don't know. I assume they're in similar orbits. Uh, I haven't studied that closely yet, but uh, that's what it would seem to indicate to me, that they're closer together than our planets are in our solar system. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see if the Hubble Space Telescope can get a good view of them or if the Hubble's successor, the James Webb Telescope, uh, which will be even more powerful, will be able to get a good look at them and, and see if there are features that can be determined that may be Mars-like or Earth-like. Um, it's possible that Mars was once habitable. Um so uh, I think this is a very exciting time for people who are uh, in the field of extraterrestrial research and planetary research.
0: We can, uh, they're 40 light years away, so in theory, uh, some future generations could find out all sorts of things about them if we sent a probe pretty pretty soon up there. Would a dwarf star have similar relationship to its planets uh, as our sun? Does to us? Um,
1: well, dwarf star aren't dwarf stars the ones that are in their final phase, their dying stars? And um, so, presumably, at one time they would have had a similar relationship to their their planets in terms of the amount of heat and light uh, that they generate. But um, if the dwarf star is in the dwindling phase, of its life, that wouldn't bode well for the planets over a very long time span uh, because their sun would be burning out.
0: Mm. Hasn't and the uh, planets
1: because, would depend upon a sun, of course.
0: Hasn't NASA, v- via Twitter, asked people for suggestions as to what to name the planets? According to the Huffington Post, the trending answer was Planet McPlanetface, I'm not sure I like that one. Have you heard any other funny or popular suggestions?
1: (laughs) I haven't yet, but there are a variety of different ways to name uh, new celestial bodies. And uh, usually for planets and stars, the International uh, Astronautical Federation uh, does the naming. And uh, so we'll see what they come up with. Um, When uh, there is a program that is specifically a NASA program, NASA has a little more latitude in the naming, uh, but for something that essentially belongs to the universe, uh, the astronomers and astrophysicists will probably be the ones who get to make the decision. You know, they, after all, are the ones who demoted uh, Pluto
0: And uh, actually, the original namers were the ancient Greeks and Romans.
1: Well, yes. But in our time, uh, in our time, uh, this international body of astronomers and astrophysicists has taken over that function.
0: Say someone at NASA has an idea for a project. How does that idea get turned into something real, from an idea to sending astronauts or technology into space?
1: Great question, Uh, and there are probably several paths to do that. Let me say that I've never actually worked as a NASA employee myself, so, what I tell you will be what I've observed since working close to NASA uh, since about 1980. Uh, But uh, let's say if you're a young scientist and you have an idea for something you would like to investigate, uh, you would basically try to put together a team of other scientists and some engineers who would be willing to work with you on a proposal and also work with you to design an instrument uh, that might fly on a spacecraft or be launched into space in some way and so you put together this team and and you develop a proposal and from that point on the process becomes very competitive um, because NASA and its advisory bodies are always entertaining proposals for new missions, new experiments, um, new lines of inquiry. And uh, there are also peer review bodies of scientists working in the same discipline who look at all the different proposals and they look at their 10-year plan of what they think they should be studying and pursuing. And um, if everything lines up well, then your proposal would be commended to NASA's attention by a peer review group, and then it would compete with other proposals that had also been um, submitted for review, and NASA would come to a judgment of, what resources they wanted to allocate to which projects.
0: I'd imagine funding would be a major consideration.
1: Exactly. And and I was going to say that's the next step. Then NASA has a budget, let's say, for planetary exploration, another budget for studying the Earth, another budget for studying the sun. And uh, all of those disciplines are kind of competing with one another for scarce resources, but if you do have your proposal accepted, uh, then you're authorized to settle down to the work of actually designing and building the instrument and testing it. Or uh, if you don't have to have an original instrument, if you just need time on a device that already exists on the International Space Station, let's say you would you would get in the queue to use that instrument, you'd be given a slot of time, probably several years in the future. Um, and sometimes it takes about a decade to go from idea to, to actually doing the experiment or the observation that you wanted to do. Um, but this competitive nature is very common throughout the the scientific world, and it's true about observing time on the Hubble Space Telescope, um, about experiment time on the International Space Station. And the process is meant to ensure that, that good science is elevated to the top through peer review, close analysis, uh, through a development cycle that includes a lot of testing, uh, because time and space is precious. And it's very expensive, so you want to make sure that your instrument will work or your experiment will work before you get that limited amount of time to have it in space. And um, it's a little bit of a joke, but sometimes people turn gray while they're waiting for their experiment to fly, Uh, but eventually it does fly.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Valerie Neal, curator and chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian National Air and Space, uh, and also the author of Where Next, Columbus? The Future of Space Exploration. It's from Oxford University Press. Let's take a call from Peter from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. I'm from Glen Ridge, home of Buzz Aldrin. Check it out. Anyway, but <laughs> I uh, last September I, I met Buzz Aldrin because they... They renamed the school in his honors, now the Buzz Aldrin Academy. And so I shook his hand. But what what he was saying when he was speaking at the dedication was, like, he was pitching the idea of, like, going to Mars. That, you're talking about the, the projects. and But that's been a project in his mind that we have to go to Mars. So, like, after I met him, I kept bragging. Do people see this hand? This hand shook the hand of a man who was on the moon. How long will it be before I can say I shook the hand of a man who's been on Mars? I mean, let be realistic. Or, Peter, wondering. let's be fair, or a woman, because there have been a fair yes. number of women who've gone up into space.
1: Yes, indeed. That's a very good point. Uh, yes, Buzz Aldrin is an ardent advocate and a very eloquent advocate for going to Mars, and is also very frustrated that we're not close to getting there yet. Uh, When he was on the moon, at that time, the NASA strategic plan was looking forward to having humans on Mars as early as 19. 85, and he in fact might have had a chance to go to Mars had it happened that soon. But uh, here we are now in 2017, and NASA is talking about sometime in the 2030s going to Mars. So obviously, the schedule has been at a snail's pace uh, compared to the schedule kept in the 1960s. Of getting to the moon so I would say if you're still alive in the 2030s and uh, if NASA stays on track with its current planning and if there's no um, uh, profound political or economic shift uh, in the United States Europe Russia and Japan uh, there is a possibility you will get to shake the hand of someone who has been to Mars.
0: When President Eisenhower and Congress created NASA in 1958, what were the major priorities at that time? Obviously, they've changed over the years.
1: Right. Well, President Eisenhower's priority was not human space flight at all. Um, he that changed
0: was- with, the Soviet, with the Soviets. Right. He, up the he and uh,
1: the administration at that time almost had to found NASA to respond to the Soviets' entry into space. And so the first goals for the space program were really very practical goals of uh, getting into space in order to uh, be able to observe the Earth better, to... Uh, possibly occupy the high ground as a military position in space, although Eisenhower was very firmly committed to a civilian space program, but the worry was, of course, that if the Soviets could put satellites into orbit, they could also put weapons into orbit. And the United States would be at risk of attack. So, uh, they were very practical goals at the beginning, and then the high-minded goal was to, um, increase our knowledge of the Earth, the solar system, and the universe, and to make that knowledge broadly available to people in a very open way. Uh, and it was, it was President Kennedy who realized the, um, kind of symbolic impact that human spaceflight could have in the world, and he was the one who um, turned on the, um, turned all the knobs, you might say, to turn on a human spaceflight program in the early 1960s. But NASA wrote a strategic plan in its first year in existence, and it mapped out uh, a path that would lead from putting satellites into orbit to putting a space station into orbit to putting humans on that space station and then going to Mars and I mean to the moon and then eventually going to Mars. So that incremental approach ending up at Mars has been in the picture since. 1959, 1960, and has been reiterated every decade in NASA's strategic planning. But what President Kennedy did was reverse the order and sent people to the moon before there was a space station in Earth orbit. And in the original plan, that might have been the launching off point. That space station might have been the launching off point for the mission to the moon or a mission to Mars. So here we are today with a space station. Part of the work going on there is to better understand uh, what the toll will be on the human body of a long duration space flight and also what kinds of both useful and uh, scientific research can people do in space over a long time. Um, A Mars craft probably would not be launched from the International Space Station because it wasn't built with that in mind, so a mission to Mars would more likely start from Earth, uh, from the ground, uh, on a very powerful rocket. On the other hand, if you could assemble a spacecraft in Earth orbit, you wouldn't have to have such a powerful rocket to shoot on out to the Moon or Mars.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Valerie Neal, curator and chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. She, her book is Where Next, Columbus? The Future of Space Exploration from Oxford University Press. We're going to take a little break, and we will come back with more. And we are back with Dr. Valerie Neal, a curator and chair of the Space History Department of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Her book from Oxford University Press is Where Next, Columbus? The Future of Space Exploration. We've been talking about funding, Dr. Neal, and there's serious concerns. It's been reported that President Trump says he intends to defund NASA's research on climate change, shifting those resources to its space program. What kinds of climate change research does NASA currently conduct?
1: Well, NASA is one of the key players in that area, along with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, NASA's principal role, of course, is um, the launching and operation of Earth-observing satellites. And for a number of years, uh, perhaps 20 years, NASA has been involved in a mission to planet Earth. Program where we're studying our home planet the way we study other planets. Um, you know, looking at it from the outside, uh, from the top down, uh, watching the changes that occur on it. And uh, when I say we, uh, I mean we, the United States, um, through NASA, have been engaged in that. And uh, Earth observation and understanding the Earth better has always been part of NASA's charter. Uh, So there is real concern in the agency that that part of its charter might be shifted to some other agency uh, or might be abandoned altogether. And and, um, it would be tragic to abandon it altogether. Uh, It might be workable to shift it to another agency. Um, But uh, the important thing is that such research into our planet continue because it's a very complex set of ecosystems and all parts of it affect all the other parts as well and there are uh, some aspects of the earth's uh, behavior its climate its systems that you can really only see from space and understand from the data that are gathered from Uh, satellites and instruments that are orbiting the Earth.
0: And if this department is defunded, what would happen to the 16 Earth Science satellites that are currently orbiting Earth?
1: Well, presumably they would be transferred to another jurisdiction, uh, and uh, presumably a, a large group of people who are currently working with them through NASA would migrate to whatever that new agency or um, alternate institution might be. I, I doubt that this administration would set up a new agency specifically to do that, but they might want to transfer some of the programs from NASA to a comparable agency. and. Um, you know that that might be workable. That that might still enable uh, the research to continue just under a different organization's umbrella, uh, and even with some of the same people involved.
0: I'd like to remind. I, a... I think
1: it's a fundamental misunderstanding of of the reason for NASA's existence to think that the Earth is not part of NASA's charter. Um, just as a lot of people don't realize that fundamental aeronautics is part of NASA's charter. It's the National Aeronautics um, and Space Administration, and space gets a lot more publicity, but NASA's doing a lot of fundamental flight research um, and research into aerodynamics and new aircraft design and all that sort of thing, and it's not as glamorous in some ways as human space flight or planetary exploration. So uh, it doesn't get as much publicity. And the same thing is true with Earth science. That's been part of NASA from the beginning, and it is legitimately a part of NASA's portfolio.
0: Yeah, a reminder that uh, we invite you to Call in if you have any questions for Dr. Valerie Neal. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. There's currently a spotlight on the topic of women working at NASA, particularly women of color because of the Oscar-nominated film Hidden Figures. What kinds of contributions are women currently making at NASA? How, how many women have flown with NASA?
1: Um, Women have been making contributions across the board. Uh, There always have been women in NASA since the very beginning, but usually behind the scenes. Uh, But I would say it was not until probably the 1980s that women moved into more prominent and more visible positions. And one aspect of that was the recruitment of astronauts for the space shuttle era. Uh, The first astronauts selected specifically for the shuttle were chosen in 1978, and there were six women in that first group. And then uh, throughout the years in subsequent recruitments of astronauts, there have been additional women. Um, In the astronaut corps as a whole, the percentage has not quite reached 25% yet. Of women, but that was a huge jump over zero percent in the 1960s through the mid 1970s.
0: I'll bet Uh, our listeners don't know that there's a political, a New York political connection because uh, former Queens borough president Claire Shulman's daughter, Ellen Baker, is one of those astronauts who went up a number of times.
1: Uh, She is indeed, she flew on the shuttle several times and uh, was a scientist astronaut and uh, that was one of the other changes in the space shuttle era that um, the role of astronaut broadened out and you could be a scientist or an engineer or a medical doctor or even a veterinarian and uh, be able to fly on the space shuttle. Uh, You didn't have to be a pilot and particularly a military pilot, uh, because the shuttle only required two pilots to fly it, but it had room for uh, six more people on board. And those six people could be scientists and engineers. And broadening out the role of astronaut really opened up the astronaut corps to women, to African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and others because um, they were more broadly represented in the scientific and engineering world than they were in the piloting world. Uh, But even more important than the astronauts, you now see women in leadership positions throughout the agency. Uh, Women have been deputy director of NASA, uh, women have become flight controllers in mission control. A woman is the chief engineer for the new Orion spacecraft. Uh, another woman right now is training for um, to be the launch director for the new space launch system. Um, a, a young woman I met when she was just out of college uh, and was working as a junior engineer at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama rose all the way through the ranks to become the deputy director of that center. Um, And a female is currently the director of the Johnson Space Center. Um, So women have moved out of the secretarial and administrative positions of NASA into the technical positions and then into senior leadership and senior management positions, and now uh, in some environments there are more women than men, and it's been a complete reversal just in the space of my adult lifetime. Uh, I started working on the fringes of NASA uh, in 1980, and often I was the only woman in the room, or there might be one other woman, and the women almost always had PhDs. or the other woman was an astronaut. Now you go into a meeting at NASA, and the meeting may be run by a woman, it may be in an office where the woman is the director of the office. I I think the um, agency has really become uh, permeated by females.
0: In 2009, President Obama signed an executive order establishing the White House Council on Women and Girls, which inspired women at NASA to create a group and blog Women at NASA. And then This February 28th, President Trump signed a bill known as the INSPIRE Act, which encourages NASA to enable women and girls to participate in STEM, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. How will that bill have an impact on NASA? Will it result in additional funding to recruit women?
1: I don't know if it will result in initial funding, but I don't see anything in it that's new. Uh, NASA has been doing this very vigorously for at least a decade now. Um, And I think a lot of that initiative began when a woman named Lori Garver was the deputy director of NASA. That's when I remember women at NASA Popping up on the web page. That's when I remember NASA uh, really pushing its educational offices to develop STEM related programs for young people in their communities. There's a program called NASA
0: Girls and Boys.
1: Right. I was going to say, for, even more important for teachers and young people, period, uh, to find resources on the web of ways they could engage in learning more about space science, uh, engineering, and exploration. So, NASA has been very um, active in this area, uh, certainly for more than ten years. What? So, so I don't know that I I don't know what the new um, order what changes it may make, but I, I don't think it's going to be perceived as a new initiative. It's probably going to be perceived more as a vote of confidence to carry on. Let's it take may a be call. Maybe under a new name. Maybe the, the name of the program will, in fact, become Inspire, but NASA's been all about inspiration since its origins.
0: Tom from the Upper West Side. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting program, but but it would be nice I hate hear. when I hear but and, because that always means what's going to follow isn't going to be all that pleasant no 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 don't misunderstand I I think I'm interested in, in the ordinary daily bodily functions of astronauts ah, okay. how do they bathe how, what do they eat What do they bring along with them? Is it just the the obvious Uh, stuff?
1: Everybody wants to know that. And probably the most commonly asked question when an astronaut speaks in public is how do you go to the bathroom in space? And the answer is very carefully. Um uh, but uh yeah they have a, they have a food lab at Johnson Space Center uh where all different foods and recipes are developed and tested and such. And uh they have a couple of hundred uh food items in inventory and before a person goes into space he or she can do a taste test of anything they want and pretty much select his or her own menu. And uh, if you're going into space for a period of, uh, a long period, like on the space station, you'll set up a menu that's like rotates every 10 days, Uh, so you'll have 10 days of uh, all different foods every day, and then 10 days later, you'll start that same cycle again, and your food will all be packed into uh, these uh, weekly and daily packages, so you don't even have to think about it. Unless you want to mix things up, unless you say, you know, I really don't want spaghetti today, I want shrimp creole, you can do that mix. But it's all organized for you, and you don't have to eat the same thing somebody else on the crew is eating.
0: I imagine Uh, there have been vegetarians as well.
1: You can be vegetarian, you can be vegan, uh, you can be low-sodium. They have really expanded uh, the offerings. And there are a lot of international uh, dishes as well because the crews themselves are international Uh, for bathing uh you uh there is no shower on the international space station uh showers are messy but uh, you can use wet wipes and soap and rinseless shampoo and maintain perfectly good normal hygiene but i will say that when a crew comes back after six months on the space station one of the first things they want showers. (laughs) are showers. <laughs> Everybody wants to head to the shower or a swimming pool and just get that thoroughly clean feeling that you get uh, from a shower rather than from, um, you know, a hand wash. Um, but they, they stay very clean. Um, and then for going to the bathroom, they have a... Um, A toilet that operates a little bit more like a vacuum cleaner. Uh, And when I say you have to use it carefully, I mean that you have to make sure you are uh, well seated on it or um, uh, things might escape and start floating around. (laughs) And so uh, it's kind of like the toilet that's on a boat, a sailboat. It's small. Uh, very compact, Uh, you can use a funnel on a long tube for urination and then for um, defecation just use it like you normally do, but the the toilet itself has fans in it and it has dryers and it has suction and so it uh, moves everything away from the body and traps it down below uh, the trap in the toilet. Uh, drives it out, sanitizes, deodorizes it, and all that sort of thing. So, well, since
0: everything can float around, isn't there a team dedicated to tracking the movements of each object on a spacecraft so nothing well, gets lost?
1: That is one of the most important jobs, believe it or not, is stowage because to work efficiently you have to know where everything is and you have to put it back where it belongs when you've finished using it and uh so yes they have a variety of means but it's all very well planned and orchestrated and uh there are people on the ground who plan out where everything will be stowed and there are directions that come with the deliveries of the new hardware new tools uh, even you know where the food will be stowed where the fresh Clothing will be stowed, that sort of thing. But the last thing you want is to need a particular tool, and you can't find it. Um, And so particularly with tools, they're very careful about those.
0: Let's take another call. Nell from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air.
1: Hi. um, You know, I am a big believer in basic science research, you know, DNA, energy, with not a specific cure or... Uh, you know uh, goal in mind but I've never been able to really understand what's the importance of space research I mean people say well people you know we're overcrowded on earth now we could go live on Mars I think well maybe five people can but it's really not going to solve overpopulation and Or or maybe even if somebody said, oh, you know, militarily, we just always have to be ahead of the game because we don't know what the other countries will do out in space. Well, now let's let's, talk about. Yeah, let's let
0: Dr. Neal give an answer.
1: Um, And if I may, I'll start with your first comment, which uh, I really appreciate when you say that you're in favor of basic research. And a lot of what is happening on the International Space Station right now is, in fact, fundamental research that doesn't uh, necessarily have an immediate practical application. Uh, Peggy Whitson is on the International Space Station right now for the third time and she is a senior scientist. I happen to be listening to um, a streaming session with her this morning and she was talking about doing work on stem cells in space uh, on the space station and the reason for that is that uh, gravity on Earth masks a lot of subtle characteristics and behaviors of materials, whether they're biological or not, uh, because gravity is always acting on them, and so you can't necessarily see how do they flow, how do they mix, how do they settle out, uh, what is their basic structure, when the force of gravity is not acting on them. And that's why that kind of basic research is done in in space, in Earth orbit, because in the weightless environment or the microgravity environment of a spacecraft, it's like that gravity curtain is pushed aside and you can really see what matters for fundamental science. Now, as for going to the moon and Mars, Um, that's a combination of exploration and science. Um, Exploration for the sense of always kind of pushing the boundaries and going where humans haven't been before, but also um, as good as they are as scientists, the rovers that are there and the instruments that are there are still not as capable as humans across the board. Uh, Some of them have better vision than humans have, or they have X-ray visions, which we don't have, or infrared vision, which we don't have. But when it comes to making judgments about what is this thing compared to that thing, they can't explain. They can show you, but they can't explain. So the scientific argument for going to the moon or to Mars has always been to do the kind of science that robotic explorers can't do. Robotic explorers can pave the way. They can teach us a tremendous amount, and they have. But ultimately you get to a level of subtlety and complexity that the robotic explorers can't do. And, and
0: Dr. Neal, we have to leave it there. We've run out of time. But thank you so much for being on today's Please Explain. We've been talking with Dr. Valerie Neal, who is the author of Where Next Columbus? The Future of Space Exploration, Oxford University Press. She is a curator and chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you and your guests. Thank you.